this week on Hometown Ghost Stories. In 1981, Brookfield, Connecticut saw its first unlawful killing in the town's history. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson shocked the world when he claimed that he was not guilty by reason of demonic possession. But the story actually began months earlier when his girlfriend's 11-year-old brother David encountered a spectral figure looming at the foot of his bed. What followed were the telltale signs of demonic possession. Could these demons have passed from one victim to the next and ultimately led to the killing of Alan Bono? Find out as we dive into the chilling tale of the devil in Brookfield, Connecticut. Hometown Ghost Stories contains serious and often distressing events and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. David couldn't sleep. He lay alone in the dark room, wide awake and alert. At first, he felt uneasy. That emotion, however, slowly transformed into one of foreboding. Deep down, David knew that something awful was about to happen. Shortly after midnight, it did. What arrived, one by one, were emissaries from the devil. First came the beast. It walked through the wall as though it didn't exist and stood in all its wicked glory at the foot of David's bed. It was out of its mind with fury. The priest's blessing had affronted its power. Its eyes were wild as it proceeded into blasphemies against the priest in the whole unfair kingdom of God. As the beast entity carried on with its awful fulminations, the two bloody helpers arrived. They materialized slowly until they appeared as solid as the first entity. They too began screaming and raging at the child. Debilitated with fright, David sought to cry out for help, but he had no voice. The madness went on. Sometimes they spat out accusations so fast that David couldn't follow what they were saying. Sometimes they spoke in languages he didn't understand, and many times what they said made no sense to him. We will make you one of us. Long have you been ours. We own your soul. I'm Jesse Wilkins, and this is Hometown Ghost Stories, The Devil in Brookfield, Connecticut. February 16th, 1981. It was an unremarkable day, according to Debbie Glatzel. She worked as a dog groomer at the Brookfield Pet Motel for a man named Alan Bono. That day, Alan invited Debbie and her sisters, 15-year-old Wanda and 13-year-old Janice, along with their 9-year-old cousin Mary, to lunch. Alan had himself a fair bit of wine at the restaurant, and they all made their way back to the kennel. As Alan continued to throw back drinks, Debbie's boyfriend Arnie Johnson came by. At this point, Bono was said to be drunk and angry. Debbie took the girls to go get pizza, but hurried back as she was worried that tensions were rising between Alan and Arnie. They collectively decided to head home, which seemed to enrage Alan. He grabbed the nine-year-old girl and refused to let go. The children ran for the car, and Arnie confronted him. Debbie tried to separate the two men. Wanda heard Arnie growling like an animal and then saw something shiny flash in the air. Before they knew it, 
Bono fell face down on the ground. Arnie seemed to be in a trance as he stared straight forward and walked into the woods. Alan Bono had been stabbed several times with a five-inch pocket knife, suffering four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arnie Johnson was discovered two miles away from the murder scene and was arrested for murder. In a shocking twist, Arnie would plead not guilty by reason of demonic possession. The story of demonic possession didn't start with Arnie, but it started a few months earlier with Debbie's brother David. It all began when Debbie and Arnie rented a home. While touring this new house, David made his way into one of the bedrooms with a waterbed. According to David, he saw a man in that room, but not a real man, a ghost man. As he looked out the window of the bedroom, he felt what seemed to be two large hands pressing on his stomach. A moment later, he was thrown backwards onto the bed. He turned quickly, expecting to see one of his brothers running away, but instead, what he saw made his jaw drop. Standing in front of him was a man with a menacing grin. As the man lifted his arm and pointed directly at him, David noticed that he could see right through him. He was looking at a ghost. He watched the figure back away and disappear. When Debbie and Arnie heard about this experience, they were nervous and wanted to back out of the deal. However, they had tied up every penny that they had into renting this house and had no other choice but to stay. David's encounter with what he thought was a ghost was just the beginning. He would constantly see this figure, which appeared more as a beast, as he described it, with a red body, black eyes, horns, half-human, half-animal. He could even see what this beast was doing when he wasn't in the house. It was as if the two had some sort of connection. David would witness this beast trying to whisper in his brother's ear, or sitting on the couch, or standing in the corner of the room, watching his every move. Judy and Carl, David's parents, did not believe his claims at first. While Judy was more open-minded, Carl was not, and thought all of these ramblings from David were just his imagination. Judy thought that his description of the beast was almost corny. Half man, half animal, red beast. It was just a little too much like something you would see out of a movie or a comic book. One day, fed up with the stories of this beast, Judy told David that if this beast was so powerful, he should make his presence known. She told David to instruct the beast to make the lights flash. David warned her against this and told her that the beast doesn't like being told what to do. But Judy persisted. The dining room lights began to flash three times before turning off. Then, the beast began to pound on the floor. As the room shook, she begged it to stop, and it finally did. Judy asked David, Can you see him now? David replied, Yes. He is sitting in the rocking chair in the next room. Judy gasped as she turned the corner and looked at the chair. She saw the rocking chair rocking back and forth on its own. Other members of the family began experiencing odd occurrences inside the home as well. They would hear footsteps and knocks. They would witness items levitating, and they would all be sent into hateful rages, seemingly out of nowhere. The children were constantly at each other's throats, making death threats. At this point, David was almost in constant communication with the beast. He was even being assaulted when he refused to obey its orders. The family witnessed him thrown to the ground, seemingly kicked and punched in the stomach and head. 
The beast didn't only torment him inside the home, but seemed to follow him wherever he would go. It did not want him to attend church. But when his parents forced him to go, David claimed that he felt hands forcing his head down. He was forced to look at his shoes the entire sermon and was unable to pay attention to what the priest was saying. The family continued to experience hauntings which were escalating inside the house. Pounding on the dining room table as if somebody were slamming their fists on it, items were levitating and flying at David. While moving the waterbed out of the house, Judy experienced a haunting of her own. It started with the feeling that she was being watched. She then felt somebody breathing on the back of her neck. Then she was pinched. She turned around and said, keep your dirty hands off me. But once again, nobody was behind her. The attacks on David got worse. At this point, he wasn't only seeing the beast, but two other entities were also tormenting David. He called these the beast's helpers. They shared some of the same features as the beast. Red skin, half-human, half-animal features, and horns protruding from the tops of their heads. One evening, David was terrified as he witnessed one of the helpers come rushing up to him, stopping just inches from his face. Arnie told him to say, Jesus will protect me. But when he said this, he was thrown to the ground, writhing and squirming in pain. The family looked on in terror as it was clear that he was being choked. When he was finally released, red marks were left on his throat as if hands were gripping it just moments earlier. After an evening of bickering and fighting amongst the family, with little Carl once again making death threats, Debbie couldn't shake the feeling that she was being followed around the home. She finally settled down and began watching TV with the family. She noticed something above her. As she looked up at the ceiling, she saw it. She could not stop looking up, and David noticed. He approached her and begged her to stop staring at the beast. She described it as having high cheekbones, a long, pointed nose, and jet black eyes. It had horns and a goatee. But it wasn't its appearance that concerned her the most. It was the feeling that overtook her while she made eye contact with it. She felt that it was overtaking her body, that she was being drawn to it. She wanted to scream, but couldn't make any noise. And she was only saved when David forced her head down, pulling her out of the trance. At this point, Judy and Debbie decided they needed to get help. They first reached out to their church, who sent Judy home with holy candles to light in each room of the house. This only seemed to stir up activity, and nearly every person in the house would be attacked that night. One of the candles would be launched against the wall, sending red wax all over the room, and dirty hooved footprints would appear on Debbie's bedsheets. Father MacDonald would then come and bless the house, starting at the basement and working his way up. At first it seemed that the blessing worked. David witnessed the beast and its helpers fly over the trees, and all was calm inside the Gladsell house for one night. The following day, David witnessed a toy dinosaur come to life, approach him, and issue a warning. The plastic toy spoke to him, saying, Beware, you will be stabbed. Judy refused to believe him, but shortly after midnight, one by one, different emissaries from the devil visited David. It started with the beast. It stood at the foot of his bed, out of his mind with fury. The two bloody helpers also appeared, enraged and hurling insults at David and the church. A fourth entity manifested in his bedroom. This one stood over six feet tall. The creature was hideous. It had one eye in the front of its head and one eye in the back. Its body was covered in red slashes. His nose was cut off and his mouth was slashed open. 
One by one, more entities began to manifest, each one more ghastly and grotesque than the last. In total, 43 entities appeared to him that evening, and what was more horrifying for David was that every single one of them was here to stay. Now aware of the severity of the situation and the danger to David and his family, the church recommended the case to Ed and Lorraine Warren. They felt that the Warrens could provide support faster than the church could, as they would need to get approval from the Vatican for an official exorcism. The Warrens immediately felt that the family story was authentic. Lorraine witnessed a black mist standing at David's side when she was first introduced to him. Ed challenged the beast who was relaying messages through David. Ed told the beast to knock three times, and the beast responded. The couple also witnessed the rocking chair moving. The family explained what they had experienced around the house and the attacks on David that they had seen. David's condition was rapidly declining. He would growl, hiss, hurl insults, speak in languages he had no way of knowing, and recite passages from the Bible. Each night, a different member of the family would have to stay with David as they watched him suffer from attacks, spasms, and convulsions. The Warrens, along with Father Sheehan and Father Rossi, concluded that there were multiple demons possessing David. According to Lorraine, during one of the several exorcisms performed on him, she witnessed him being choked and witnessed him levitate. The Warrens contacted the Brookfield police and warned them that the situation was becoming dangerous. During one particularly brutal exorcism, Arnie got fed up with the demons picking on David, and according to eyewitness testimony, he challenged one of them to possess him instead. A few days after the incident, the beast reportedly took over his vehicle. Arnie attempted to slam on the brakes, but the car continued forward, heading straight for a tree. David, watching on in terror, claimed that the brake lights were lighting up, but the car wasn't slowing down. Arnie's life was perhaps saved as the car turned on its side unexpectedly before smashing into the tree. After this, against the Warren's wishes, Arnie returned to the rental property to examine an old well where he confronted the beast face to face. This would be his next crucial mistake as the demon would take control of him after making eye contact. Debbie decided it was time to move and rented an apartment close to her job at the dog kennel from the owner, Alan Bono. After they moved in, Debbie started to notice Arnie's odd behavior. It was strikingly similar to David's, causing her to worry that he too had become possessed. Johnson would fall into trance-like states where his face would contort and he would be heard growling like an animal. On February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job and joined Debbie at the kennel. As Bono fell into a drunken rage, Arnie, while growling, stabbed Bono repeatedly with a five-inch pocket knife. Johnson was arrested and held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The day after the killing, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield Police Department that Arnie was possessed by a demon at the time of the killing and likely had no idea what he had done. The media went into a frenzy over the claim that the devil made him do it. Johnson's lawyer received calls from all over the world as news spread about the demon murder trial. His lawyer, Martin Manella, traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases and planned to bring in exorcism specialists from Europe as well as the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms to help with the defense. The trial began on October 28, 1981, and Manila attempted to submit America's first ever plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. 
but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, rejected this defense and refused to hear any mention of demons or demonic possession in his courtroom. Instead, the defense decided to imply that he had acted in self-defense. The jury deliberated for 15 hours before declaring that he was not guilty of first-degree murder. However, they did find him guilty of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, but would only serve five years before being released. The incident led to several documentaries, several books, and the third Conjuring movie. Arnie would go on to marry Debbie, and the case would go down as one of the most controversial that the Warrens were ever involved in. Diabolical forces are formidable. These forces are eternal, and they exist today. The fairy tale is true. The devil exists. God exists. And for us, as people, our very destiny hinges upon which one we elect to follow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into Hometown Ghost Stories, episode number 99, The Devil in Brookfield. I'm Jesse Wilkins. I'm joined by Rob Coakley. Hello, Rob. I just want to give you props for this one. I saw a comment in the chat that said this entire documentary was better than the Conjuring 3 movie, and you absolutely crushed it with this. You did such a good job, so kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah, we did review the Conjuring 3, but we tried not to try not to compare it too much to the actual case because we tried to review the movie as it was in itself. Mm-hmm. And now I think we can, we could probably dive into that maybe later in the show on how badly that movie screwed up because this, the original story is so good that they didn't have to go a different route with it. And they chose to anyways, but we're also joined by Dave Wilkins. Hello, Dave. Hello. Nice job with that. I agree. This was very well put together. Big, long, complicated case. So to be able to condense it to 15, 20 minutes like that was, uh, was pretty impressive. It was very tricky to, to get it down. And there's so much hauntings that were going on. And we'll, we'll jump into some of the more specifics of it and everything that was going on inside the house. And it was, it was really going on inside of multiple locations because they had the rental property that Debbie and Arnie had. And they also had their original house because the whole family didn't move into the house. It was a little tricky reading the book, trying to figure out which house they were actually at and all that kind of stuff. So... The devil made me do it case that that became popular once the press got word of this whole situation. But the story doesn't start with the murder. The story starts a few months before with the possession of David Glatzel. So this one, there's a few different theories on how it started. And I didn't really jump into that. Ed Warren jumped into it in the book. And basically he started figuring out like, well, how did you invite this demon in? Because you don't just show up at a haunted house and get possessed by a demon typically. Typically with a demon you have to invite it in some sort of way. Now, obviously, later on in the story, it seemed that Arnie invited the spirit in by actually challenging it and saying, just possess me instead, which is how he ended up being possessed. With David, they theorized, or at least Ed did, that they were using some sort of a Ouija board and this opened him up to possession from a demon. Now, Ed seems to resort to this a lot in a lot of his books, which is basically if you touch a Ouija board, big danger, 
it's a big no-no in his book, literally. So that's that's one of the theories on on how it happened. I guess the other idea would be this thing just picked him out when he visited the house in that whole waterbed scene, which was pretty horrifying. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, I remember they went through a bunch of different theories and they, there was one theory at the end that I thought was interesting. It was involving a Ouija board, but they basically had this fr- these family friends that they would go snowmobiling with. And they were all doing that one year and they broke out a Ouija board at that event. And they think that they might've conjured something ancient and evil. Cause this isn't just a regular demonic possession. They believe this was either the devil or the devil's second in command, Beelzebub. Um, so this was like extra. They think that this thing, if it was possessing him was very, very old and ancient. Yeah, if the story on, it face, on its face is true, which there's a whole lot. So it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around. Uh, most of the information out of this, I based right out of the book, which is um, this book. It's uh, The Devil Made Me Do It. It's written by uh, Gerald Brittle, but it was kind of co-authored by Lorraine Warren herself. So this is like their actual account of this. And this is a super controversial book as well. We'll get to the controversy a little bit later. But if everything in this book is true, it's the most insane haunting of all time. There are not just this beast, which very well could be the devil. You have two of its helpers, which also sounded absolutely horrifying and awful. It possessed multiple people. It ended in a murder. And not only that, there was also that one night where 40 other ones showed up and they just seemed to manifest just one after another and the description in the book. And I, I kind of loosely went into some of the descriptions of these things. It went into the description of almost every demon, or at least the first like five that showed up or whatever. And these things were just horrifying or something out of a nightmare. Their faces are torn open. They're mutilated. It sounded like a lot of them were appearing. If they were earthbound spirits, that seemed like they were appearing in the way that they died, or they were just showing up in the most horrifying way possible to scare an 11 or 12 year old boy. So, I think if if they are demons, obviously they were never earthbound, but it just sounds like an an absolute nightmare and a literal nightmare of how these things were. There's a lot of things that just sound like a literal nightmare for people to, to witness during this one. Some of the stuff that really took me aback, like there's a lot of imagery and a lot of that stuff. That's really scary. Like on the surface, like that stuff is terrifying, but the one that like really caught me was when it was like, usually when you hear a possession or a demonic possession, they're causing physical harm to other people during the possession. During his possession, there was a point where he was being harmed in front of his family, which was the thing that really like caught my attention more than the other stuff. A lot of the other stuff, very terrifying, but that stood out to me as I don't know if we've heard that specific instance before we do know that like the the possession stuff damages the body attacks the body but the way that it was being attacked in this specific scene just seemed a little bit different and maybe i'm off on that but that's what stood out the most no you're not i haven't seen that in a lot of cases and this one was straight up like boxing this poor kid in front of his family excuse me as my dog just squeezes behind me it's gonna fix my posture for the rest of the stream though (laughs) um but yeah, this thing was, it was punching him in the face. It was kicking him. There was a, a shooting a him. It shot him multiple times. Yeah. So it's like, and it would strangle him to a point where the family just thought he was dead. And they're like, all right, call an ambulance because the kid's dead. He just got choked. And it wasn't like, 
because you could fake that, right? You could fake pretending to be choked. You could fake pretending to get punched in the face, punched in the stomach, kicked while you're down, whatever. It's a lot. It's a lot to do multiple times, but this was happening pretty often. It wasn't just once. But what he couldn't fake or what he didn't fake or what he probably didn't fake was when he would get strangled by these demons after he broke out of it or, or woke back up or whatever, he would have red finger marks all around his neck, almost like it was burned into him. So mm. it was there were there were also wounds to back it up. It wasn't just a crazy acting job or anything like that. So I think on its face, the possession of David at least was authentic. Did it also possess Arnie? I'm not entirely sure. We'll get into that in a little bit, but um, there, yeah. there were. A, go ahead. They, I, I wanted to actually just elaborate on the where we said it shot him because this happened a couple of different times. He wasn't actually shot, but there are a couple of different occasions where he said, "Oh no, mom, the the demon is here. I see it. It's standing. He has a gun. He's pointing a gun at me." And then he would act as if he were shot, and this would this happened I think at least twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was once I think it shot him in the stomach once, and then it shot him in the head once. And when it shot him in the head, they thought he was dead. They thought that was the end of him. Right. So um, Brodad says in chat, he says, seems like the demon manifested itself to the boy in the typical description of what every kid thinks the devil looks like. That would have terrified him. Exactly. And for now, we'll, we'll again, we'll just go off the basis that the, the entire family thought this was authentic, at least at the time. And it wasn't just David that ended up seeing this beast by the end of the haunting, multiple people in the family saw it and, it and everyone in the house experienced some sort of paranormal activity. Items were levitating. People felt like they were being followed. Other people were grabbed. Judy was pinched on the butt once and she turned around and was like, you know, get your dirty hands off me or whatever. And there was obviously no one there. There were so many things happening. I mean, like, like the items that were levitating, one of them, uh, you know, like, I can't remember what the item was, but it kept flying and hitting David. They put it back and it would fly and hit him again. Then the thing that was crazy is they took it and they put it in a different room. And this thing levitated, flew around the corner from the other room and hit David again. And I think that's when Carl, who was the father, he was a big skeptic in the story. You see this a lot in hauntings. Uh, he was a big skeptic about it. And that's when he was like, I don't know what I just saw. But the thing that sold Carl, who was kind of the hardest skeptic to sell on this, was when he witnessed his son get punched in the face by a demon and he just, he, it wasn't that he just saw the kid react. He heard like the fist hit him. And that's when he was like, okay, something is, something is happening to my boy. And that's when, um, that's when he decided like, okay, let's get whatever help we need to get. Yeah. So this, this whole story has different, it's very fantastical. It's hard to listen to this entire story and not question its validity what whether what actually happened what didn't happen because there's two different skeptical angles i think you can take with this one obviously would be that the kid is making it up that's a hard one to believe if we're taking this whole story at face value because it went on for so long he would have to maintain this possession this act for a really long time and there was a point towards the end of the book where David was basically just crying to his mother every day. He's like, I don't, I can't keep, I can't keep doing this. I need it to end. And that seems really authentic. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the other skeptical viewpoint is this was at least in the beginning going to be attempted to be used as a defense in court 
So you have to wonder at that point when they they established they were going to use this as a defense, how much of this story was backfilled in order to make a court case. So those, I think that is actually more likely if we're going to look at this from a skeptical viewpoint than if the kid was faking it. Right. And obviously the Warrens being, being involved, they're very controversial figures. People were out to get the Warrens. They thought that every story that they were involved in was nonsense and they were just making it up. And this didn't help. But if you take this one, and let's just compare it to the other Conjuring cases. So if you take the first Conjuring movie, uh, The House in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. with the, um, I forget the name of the family. The, the parents. The parent family. If you take that case, the Warrens were involved, but they were kicked out of that situation. So they showed up. They're like, we're here to help. They're like, okay, sounds good. They started to help out. They did an exorcism. Things went a little crazy. Roger Perrin ended up punching Ed Warren in the face and they left. And then that was the end of them being involved in that case. Much different than the movie. In the movie, they were superheroes, right? So not heavily involved in that one or they were involved, but it didn't end like the movie ended. In The Conjuring 2, you had the Enfield poltergeist, which we also covered on this show. In that one, they had virtually nothing to do with this case. They showed up like well at the end of the haunting when everything kind of died down, uninvited. And the family's like, okay, sure. Yeah, come see what's up. And then they stayed a couple days and then that was it. The movie was completely wrong with their involvement. However, the movie did follow the timeline of that actual haunting pretty well. It's just the the Warrens were not the superheroes that they made them out to be in that case. They had basically nothing to do with it. That's similar to Amityville. They didn't really come in until after the haunting was over. Yep. Is this what we need to start doing, guys? Do we just need to find out about like demonic hauntings and scary hauntings and just like start kicking doors down like Jesse's in Newport, Rhode Island, grabbing yeah, tour guides? I'm already doing this. I'm waiting for you guys to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> and we just we're just like, we're here. We're gonna we're gonna investigate everything. And then mm -hmm. movies get made of us. I become the star. We recast Dave as a dog, probably, you know, <laughs> and we just make so much money. Well, that's the idea is, is that a lot of people think that the Warrens were just in this to make money and everything that they did, they, everyone's saying, you know, this is nonsense and they're just doing this for money. And there's some validity to that with this story. So with this story, they were more involved in this story than they were in the other two. And the big difference with this one is they were called by the family or referred to from the church. The church wanted to help, or at least some of them did or the local church wanted to help, but the higher ups just weren't going to take the case. Again, with these demonic possession cases in the Catholic church, you need to provide actual proof that the, the possession is going on before they will actually go in and perform an exorcism. So to expedite the process, because they saw how bad the situation was getting and how fast it was getting out of control, the priests were like, you know what, you should probably call the Warrens because they'll be able to come in here you know, Ed's a demonologist, Lorraine's a clairvoyant, and they can come in and help you guys out. So they did. And then so the, the Warrens had every right to be here in this case, and they did help as much as they could. Now, things do get tricky with this story. So for one, the book, when you read it, you're like, this is a little much. You know, it's so hard to 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 read this book and and take it at face value. But the Warrens' involvement in this 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 will be their most controversial case. For one, we could start with the book. The book, it, it, like I said, it's a lot. 
the family came out later and said, basically, the Warrens promised us millions of dollars to take our story and 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 use it as their own and make a book out of it. They said that you know they'd make us millionaires, and they basically made up a whole bunch of stuff. And we only, I think, the family claimed that they only saw like two thousand dollars from Oof. the book deal. So they tried to sue. I believe it was actually David, and I think Carl filed a separate lawsuit because he's basically like you know, you may be out to be a bad guy. And David was like, I can't find work now because of this book. And they had alleged that. And in fairness, he murdered somebody. No, 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 no not David. Oh, sorry. sorry. I, was, I thought you said that the other guy had us. I'm sorry about that. I thought we were going yeah. with the guy that murdered hard, someone. Hard for him to find work as well, <laughs> but he is out of jail. Um, so he didn't do much time. Five years. isn't. They let him out for good behavior, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was also um, yeah because he was sentenced to ten to twenty for a manslaughter. wasn't charged with murder, which actually I almost went back and fixed my intro because I said the murder of uh, Alan Bono. To, but to me, and to, probably to Alan's family, it was murder, right? But it, anyways, the official charge is manslaughter. So Ron Meshbesher, attorneys allegedly don't get on our case. Allegedly murdered him. But saved you. <laughs> yeah, so David Glatzel and Carl Glatzel Jr. So the younger Carl who was in the book. And basically Carl was like, ever since the possession started, he was like an asshole and he was just making death threats to everybody all the time. And then when the priest showed up and when the Warrens showed up, he'd be like, yeah, they're faking it. It's all fake. You're here for no reason. And in the book, the Warrens are like, well, this is the, the beast is making him say this. And I'm like, Oh, you know, maybe, <laughs> or maybe he's saying it because it is nonsense. But at the same time, I approach this with an open mind. I'm not taking one side or the other, but I lean towards David's possession being legitimate because of all of the things and all the witnesses. Anyways, so David and Carl, they Carl Jr., they did end up suing the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy, libel, and the in, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged that he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness. And the book presented him as the evil villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make his would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. It might have helped Johnson get out of jail. Didn't make the family millionaires, though. And then with uh, Carl Glatzel, the father, he said uh, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school. That might still be Carl Jr., actually, because I don't think the father was in school, and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began to write a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. So that was Carl Jr. there. Did that book ever come out? Or it says he began to write a book? I'm not sure. I'm not mm. sure. I'm just reading this off of Wikipedia right now. So who knows what's actually true here? Uh, so Lorraine Warren ended up defending her work with the family, claiming that six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time that the boy was possessed and that the super, supernatural events he just, or that she described were real. No independent verification of this claim about the priest's alleged views was provided. I would assume that the priest had to see some stuff and there were multiple priests involved. There were multiple exorcisms. So priests would have been there. So they wouldn't have, after the first exorcism, they wouldn't have kept showing up or they wouldn't have kept showing up if they didn't see some stuff. So I do believe that the priest saw things. I believe that Ed and Warren saw things. I do believe that David was possessed. Um, but this obviously, whenever you have these kind of facts after the, after the case, you have to, you have to weigh out both things, like which, which is more likely right. if the family is now saying that it's nonsense, including David and Carl, David, the kid who was possessed 
and his brother. Uh, that that makes me wonder if it was authentic. However, this takes me back to the Divic box case. And if you guys didn't listen to that side content episode, basically the guy who uh, originated the story of the Divic box, he later came out and said that the whole story, he just made it up and he's a horror writer. And he said the whole thing was fake. But this was after the Dybbuk, the story of the Dybbuk box, the rights to the story got sold by an owner down the line. And that guy made a whole bunch of money off the Dybbuk box situation. And this guy didn't. So you might have the same kind of situation here where you have David and Carl who trusted the Warrens to make the millions of dollars off this book and probably off the, the movie as well, eventually. And they end up with, with a couple thousand dollars. And then they're like, you know what? The whole story's bullshit and we're going to sue them. And it's probably because they didn't make that money. So, so to me, I, I look at it, I could see both sides. I could see this the story is, being good. This is pretty consistent with a lot of Ed and Lorraine Warren's cases too. We mentioned it. This almost exact same thing happened with Amityville is you had the book came out, which they didn't write. Jay Anson wrote the Amityville book, but basically the, that one was heavily contested as being a hoax that was all concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren after the fact in order to get the book deal through Jay, Jay Anson. So that, that was with that case. You had something similar. You had similar accusations of them making stuff up in the uh, Lindley Street poltergeist case where the girl said she watched Lorraine Warren intentionally burn her hand and then blame it on a ghost. Uh, you see, we mentioned the ones from the, you know, they were kicked out of the conjuring house and it's pretty much every one of their cases have been wildly contested after the fact. Exactly. So it's, it's tough. And I mean, these guys are superstars, right? They still are. When they were alive, they were, they were the ones and there were people out there that their life goal was to debunk the Warrens. So even before they would release their story, even before they would release the book, as soon as somebody hears that the Warrens are showing up at a haunted location, the debunkers are already trying to pick apart things and figure, and figure stuff out. But it has to be mentioned. I've listened to a few podcasts on this and you know watched a few movies and documentaries on it. And a lot of people leave this fact out that the family was straight up down the line, you know, 30 years later was like, no, this didn't happen. Well, was- I think Allison and chat brings up a really good point. So they're coming out against it now, but they were okay to use it as a, as a defense in a criminal trial at the time. So that's kind of shady on the family side too. And I'm not justifying Ed and Lorraine Warren's stuff either. I think the problem with them is I think they come into real situations sometimes and then they add a little bit of their Ed and Lorraine Warren dust of extraness and it murkies it up. And we've always talked about this where like when you have an actual thing, adding more fantastical elements actually just hurts the thing because that's all I'm going to focus on now is everything that is definitely fake or looks fake. And now we lose sight of the stuff that was actually happening. Right. Yep. So I, I would say that going and actually allowing this to be your defense and then coming out years later and saying, no, that didn't happen. Eh. Eh. Right. Yeah. Serena, I think- Serena brings up a point that I want to comment on. She says, I'm amazed no one in this family 
had psychiatric screenings for abuse from the boy, drug or alcohol use from the family and current stressors. According to the book, they had him analyzed by several different uh, psychiatrists. And every single time they brought him in, they said that he was fine. And yeah, and the parents were also not drinkers or drug users, according to the book. So again, this is according to the book that they're all saying is bullshit now. But his mental disabilities that they talked about, he was just seemed like he had a learning disability, which actually adds to some of the claims during the possession. So he basically he had like a, a slower reading level and he just wasn't um, he wasn't as advanced as other kids his age. So it, it didn't sound like it was any kind of serious disability, but it sounded like, you know, it's just some sort of general learning disability. But as soon as this possession started, all of a sudden he's speaking like somebody, you know, like a grown man. Like he's, he's saying things that he's never said before using language. He's never said he's speaking in other languages. He understands when this, the priest was speaking in Latin. Actually, I might be mixing that up with a different case. So don't quote me on that. But, but there was a whole bunch of things that was coming out of his mouth that everyone in the family is like, where'd he get that from? And right. How is he understanding this? And he's quoting verses from the Bible that he had memorized. He can't even get through his books at school. So there's there was a lot of factors that that didn't really make sense with that whole that whole angle. It just wasn't consistent. So there was definitely a lot of things when he was you know, during these exorcisms and, and while he was possessed that didn't make any sense whatsoever. And that's a sign with a, with a lot of possessions. You see this a lot of time. You see people with no education, people that never even learned how to read, speaking fluent Latin and, and fluent Russian and all these languages that they're like, Where, how did he even learn this? This guy can't, can't even read his own language, never mind other languages. You see it all the time in possession cases. So yeah. Well, that, that's the other thing here is we have consistency across that for some of the stuff that has happened with the stuff you just brought up amongst some of the other things. So... Either they were pulling from other stuff that they had heard, or we are seeing a pattern through every type of possession that we've covered with some of these things in this case as well. Right. Well, exactly. We, we say we like consistency in these types of cases, and there are a lot of consistencies with this one. One quick point on the Warrens and their involvement in this case. I think it is notable and worthy of mentioning that they were involved in this before the murder which suggests that why else would they be involved beforehand if there wasn't, if the family didn't believe it was a demonic possession? That's a good mm -hmm. point. And right. according to the book, they, they were warning the police as it was starting to get out of control. This was even before Arnie got possessed. They called the police and were like, listen, something, something's bad. Something bad is going to be happening. So or something bad is going to happen with this family. So be ready because this is getting out of control. And then it did. So I suppose we, we can hop into the, the second possession here. So basically, as we mentioned earlier, during one of the final exorcisms, it might've been the final exorcism of David, which would make sense as to why he was no longer possessed after this. But basically Arnie was like watching him just getting his ass kicked by this invisible demon. And he's like, you know, if you're so tough, come possess me. And everyone's like, don't, don't say that. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. And after that, it seems like the possession shifted over. Now, apparently there was a couple other events, but there seemed to be some hints that something was off with him. So he would go into these trance-like states. He would be growling like an animal. It seemed to be gradually getting worse. And then I get I guess he went back and visited the well. Now I, I heard a couple of different things. So there was two rooms in this rental property that were haunted. It was the waterbed room, which they did end up moving the waterbed out of, but the former waterbed room. And then there was some there was a room in the basement, wasn't there, Dave? 
Yes. Okay. So there was a room in the basement. Now, according to a few websites, there was also a well. And I'm not entirely sure if the, this it didn't happen in the water bedroom, but this the final encounter with the demon and Arnie occurred either in the basement or out by a well. I feel like the well was probably added just because a well sounds creepier, but basements are still creepy. So yeah, yeah but I mean, the other thing you got to throw in here is you probably walk around like you're possessed after sleeping on a waterbed every night too. <laughs> not good for the back. <laughs> no, 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 not, not recommended. Good. There's a reason those got phased out, right? You're just sitting on this stagnant water for, or sleeping on stagnant water month after month. It can't be great, but either way, uh, he did not sleep on the waterbed. That was that was different. But anyways, the uh, so he goes and he confronts this demon. The 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 Warrens were like, don't don't go do that. But for some reason, he decided to. And then it was the eye contact, and the eye contact is a reoccurring thing. So eye contact happened originally with David in the waterbed room when he first saw this this ghost, which appeared more like a man at that time, as opposed to the beast. Second time was with Debbie when she was watching TV. She felt that something was above her and she locked eyes with the, with the beast above her. And she said it wasn't just the horrifying appearance of this thing that scared her. It was more so the feeling that she got when she made eye contact. That's eye contact number two. Then eye contact number three is when Arnie goes back to the property to confront this demon and try to settle things one for all, or once and for all makes eye contact with the demon and boom, that's when the full possession takes place. So that's what's in the book anyways. And that's apparently when he got possessed, whether it was at a well or in the basement, I don't know, but that's when the full possession took place. And now we get to the, you know, the sad part of the story, which is he shows up to this pizza party and Alan is, is drunk and belligerent and grabbing girls and stuff so like apparently he grabbed the nine-year-old girl when they tried to leave so you know um that's the story anyways and then they broke it up and they those two got in a fight and the book tried to make it seem like i don't know if you remember this dave but towards the end of the book they they kind of made it try to seem like they were trying to make it be like he didn't stab him yeah that you know that seemed to be the angle that the book was taking but that's consistent with the court case because the court case said that no one actually saw him stab the uh, Alan, right? That they only saw him collapse, and there was like f- five or six witnesses. And then the police originally coerced confession—not a confession, but testimony—out of the three young girls there. The I think it was uh, Arnie's younger sisters, mm-hmm. and they under duress apparently said that they, that he did stab them. And then when they tried to get them to validate that, that those claims in court, all three of the girls recanted and said the police bullied them into making those confessions. So there, Man, no one actually had look for that police station. Yeah. So no one, no one actually saw Arnie do it. It's just presumed that he did. Yeah. And it was his pocket knife that was at the crime scene. There's photos of it in the book and it was the pocket knife that he carried on him all the time. And there was actually a few kind of premonitions towards this earlier in the story as well, where the demon was was saying stuff like, you know, you will be stabbed, you will be stabbed, there will be a death. They were saying someone will pay for this. So they were they were alluding to it apparently. And the least scary haunting in this, but would be scary if you experienced it, was the toy dinosaur. <laughs> so oh man. <laughs> I had to leave it in there because it's a part of the story, but I mean it was wacky. 
So he's in the kitchen and there's this tall, it's a big toy too. I, I can't remember how big it was. I think it was a couple of feet. And this toy dinosaur just, just comes to life and starts walking at him. And I think the biggest problem here is all I can picture is the dinosaur from Toy Story. <laughs> oh, I have Barney in my head. So <laughs> Barney, we're all sure, yeah. pages. Well, Barney would be horrifying, but the one from Toy Story, you just can't make that dinosaur scary. But this thing came to life and it was just like, you will be stabbed. <laughs> I'm assuming that's how we sounded, right? So the dinosaur says, you will be stabbed. And I bet he sounded like Reptar from Rugrats. It could be, right? Yeah. Holt, I am Reptar. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stab you. You'll stab me. You know, just doing the whole Barney song there. Could have been that. Could have been that. So, yep. anyways, uh, that was a haunting that took place. But the important thing is that was, if true, that's another, another lead up to the stabbing actually taking place. So. Allison had a good point. She said maybe the family was so mad they didn't make lots of money like they were promised, so they wanted to ruin the Warrens' reputation. That is the <laughs> same theory as the Amityville lawyer who got cut out of the book deal and then went around saying that the Warrens were frauds after the fact. Yeah, you're going to get this anytime that you have superstars, right? Like, like Let's look at, I mean, Zach Baggins is one of the biggest names in ghost hunting right now. In every, you know, it's like a 50-50 split if you look at what people think of him, right? And it's just because when you are that kind of a superstar, whether you're legitimate or not, people are going to come after you. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen all the time. I mean, it happens in all, all, all forms of entertainment or, you know, things like uh, being an investigator or a ghost hunter. Whenever you're the, look at politics, look at everything, look at movie stars, look at rappers, look at everything. You know, every the best and most talented people out there are always going to have haters. Even we have a couple one-star reviews. There's literally it? someone in the chat named I hate Rob right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is a thing in the chat at this very moment. So it has been proven. <laughs> but, um, to me though, I like to, I like, I always wanted to debunk the Warrens and stuff like that. That's kind of the way I want to lean. But for this one, where they were there before this and they were warning the police like this one especially feels like the family is sitting there trying to recoup money that they thought they were earned or owed sorry it, it just it it doesn't sit right with me if they if so the point of the story of them coming in, if they came in after the murder and they were like, you need to do this, you need to tell them that there was, was a demonic possession and everything. But because of the fact they were there before, it just, it just feels like, I don't know, to your point, Jesse, ghost haters. Yeah. I, I think it's absolutely a monetary thing. I mean, they're, they're, they were sticking by their story when it was happening. It wasn't like they just showed up to a random house and was like, that kid's possessed. Let's write a book. No, mm -hmm. no, you called them. You called them because you were possessed. Your family was concerned for you. So you can't say the story is bullshit now. There might be elements. And if you read this book, like I said, it's really hard as an open-minded person or a slightly skeptical person to read this book and believe every word in it. It's a lot. I'd still recommend yeah. you read it, but it's a lot. It's almost too much. So I get I, maybe they're saying that they exaggerated the story a little bit, which I could absolutely see. Yeah. But to, to go out and say that, the whole story's fake. Well, then, then you're a fraud. And how do we trust you now? Because you used to say it was real and you right. called them. They didn't just show up on your doorstep. If it was like the Enfield case where they just showed up unannounced, then that would hold a little bit more water, but not when you called them. 
you so, called them, you used, you try to use it as a defense in court. Like there's a lot that doesn't make this family look great after the fact, if they're trying to debunk the whole thing is that's mm-hmm. just my two cents on it. Yeah. So here's where I stray away from the story. I don't think Arnie was possessed in my personal opinion. I've now read this book twice. I've watched all the documentaries on it. I've you know read a lot of the case notes. I've, I've done all my research on this case for years. And I, I don't think that Arnie was possessed. I think he used this possession as an excuse to kill Alan. I think Alan might've been having a, an affair with Debbie. I don't think they were married at the time. They were not married at the time, but I think, I think Debbie Allegedly. might've been cheating on him with her boss, Alan. And I think he used this as an excuse to go kill him. And here's the key factor. When Arnie showed up, she's like, I'm gonna take the girls. Let's go get some pizza. And she, in her own words, in this book, she said that she felt like tensions or the tension might be rising between those two. So she had to get back there. Why? Why would the, why would they be fighting when no one's in the house, but those two? Probably because there's, there's something, some sort of love triangle going on there. That, that's kind of my opinion on it. It's, a, it's not even just my opinion. This was a theory that was floated around by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They think there might've been something going on there. And I think he used the possession as an excuse to kill this guy. And allegedly. And I mean, if there are a couple of allegedly's in there for me, please, Jesse. Jesus allegedly, Christ, allegedly, I don't allegedly. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure some of these guys are still alive, not Alan, but I think some of these people are probably still alive. So allegedly this might not be, um, this might not be the case, but I didn't see enough evidence of possession from Arnie other than him growling like an animal, but they were both drinking that day. And it seemed like they didn't really like each other. And I think that was, I think that that's my stance on it. What do you guys think with the, with the Arnie possession? Yeah. As soon as the book brought up that there was a suspected love triangle, then I was like, Oh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. They're drinking. These accusations get tossed around. Even if there wasn't a love triangle, you just like the accusation gets tossed around. These two guys are drinking and they start tussling. I think it's much more believable than a demon was transferred Right, but, I mean, but to play devil's advocate, see what nice. I did there? You like I that? Do. I do. Um, if this is already a possession case, there's one way of looking at it that they were already treating for possession, and he could use it as saying it transferred to me. That's why I was in the state that I was when I killed this man. The other one would be if the possess if the possession is real. And he did say, and he did invite the demon into him. It is still a possibility, right? So I, I think like you guys' point is probably more likely, but I don't want to discount the other way because that we've kind of established that that stuff has happened before where you invite the demon in and allow it to take shelter within your body type of deal so just because this ended in a murder and we obviously want justice to be served for somebody dying that the rules still do we don't make the rules but the rules still do apply to some of this stuff does that make sense it does and it it definitely it still could be but i think it it just ended up a little bit there's too much going on there also with these girls changing their story and everyone saying that they never actually saw him stab the guy. Alan is the only one that could have defended himself there and he's dead. So he can't give his side of the story. 
everyone else, it sounds like they were in protect Arnie mode. And they're saying, well, we never saw him stab him. We never saw him do it. But it's his pocket knife all bloody on the ground that he carried with him every single day. It sounded like a bunch of family members sticking up for this guy. And it, it in, in the end, it worked. Yes, he got yeah. found guilty of manslaughter. He did not get found guilty of first degree murder, which in my opinion, which in my opinion, allegedly it absolutely was murder. And, um, you know, he ended up only serving five years out of the 10 to 20 year sentence anyways. So he was he was out in five years. You get more, yeah. more, you get more time for a gun charge, you know? So it's, he got a, you know, he, he got off easy for, for what it was and he didn't deny killing him. He, his, his take, cause basically the, the judge threw it out. He's like, you're not bringing demonic possession into my courtroom. It's not going to happen. So the defense switched gears there and they're like, well, we'll say he was acting in self-defense, which he very well may have been. This guy was drunk. He grabbed a girl again. We're just going off of the family story here because he's dead. He can't give his side of the story. And that's kind of where we're at. So it was someone stabbed him. First of all, he had five stab wounds in his chest and I think his shoulder also. It w- he didn't stab himself. It wasn't the girlfriend and it was very unlikely to be one of the kids. So somebody stabbed him. It was most likely Arnie. The thing that I have an issue with is where the murder charge ever even came from because first degree murder would be premeditated which means he planned on killing this guy it sounds to me like it was more like it was a fight that ended in a stabbing and that would be manslaughter right i mean but maybe maybe murder too yeah i guess well i mean like i said there's a reason that the first degree murder charge got dropped and i don't think it had anything to do with possession because they weren't even allowed to mention it in the courtroom Obviously, the jury's going to hear about it outside. It made worldwide news, but at the same time, if you have the, the if you have that thrown out, then they were just going off the facts of the case. I think the idea for first degree murder would be he showed up later in the day and showed up, and within an hour he killed the guy or whatever the time frame was. So it may have been premeditated, but that wasn't what ended up getting passed down. It ended up being manslaughter. Mm. That's five years is still really light, right? That's well, that wasn't a sentence. He was sentenced to I, twenty. I understand, but he got out in five years. That's 250 hometown ghost stories episodes, mm-hmm. which is how I think we should start sentencing murderers. <laughs> you got to listen to all the episodes. <laughs> punish, punish them. <laughs> Punishment. You have to listen to 250 hometown ghost story episodes. <laughs> oh, poor man. People, those poor, poor people. Anyways. <laughs> So that's kind of the case, man. That, that That's where I stand on it. I, I do believe that the possession of David was legit. I believe a good chunk of this book, like I said, it, it's a lot, but you could go out there and get it again. It's called uh, The Devil in Connecticut. It's a Gerald Brittle book. It's a read. I you know, have gone through it twice now. So it's a, it's, it's a wild same, story. Uh, it really is. Same author who did The Demonologist. Mm, that's a great book. Yes. So. I recommend both. And for this, for this, we said it like, whether or not you believe this or not, a little redundant there, sorry. The book is really good. Even if it's completely fiction and it's all made up, it's still a really good demonic possession story and definitely worth reading the book if that's something that you're into. Absolutely, yeah. So whether you believe it or not, or if you choose to believe it, or if you don't choose to believe it, or you know, you could choose to believe it, it's or a good not. book. <laughs> or not, yeah, it's, it's a fine book. So <laughs> any, uh, any final thoughts on this, uh, on this tale? not just well done with the documentary on the opening and knocking it out of the park in 20 minutes. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's a it's a tricky case, and again, there's a lot a lot more to it. There's a lot of uh, a lot of other things that went on inside this house and the second house and everything with with the whole case. There's actually a, a Netflix series coming out like next week on this, and so I'm googling. I'm just trying to find pictures. There were no pictures of anything with this thing. There was a couple news articles, and that was it. I ended up having to flip through the book and take pictures of the pictures in the book because I couldn't find them anywhere online. So I. Uh, <laughs> So I I couldn't find anything on it, but there is apparently a, a Netflix documentary coming out uh, pretty soon here. I'll pull up the name of it. While you do that, I will read our five-star review for this week from Avillo titled You Guys Rock. Thanks so much for all you guys do. Love the podcast. Occasionally, I get to watch the YouTube vids. You guys do an excellent job. Keep up the great work. I am still playing catch up. Cool. It's a good review. Uh, yeah, so that series comes out uh i believe on the 18th or 19th it's called the devil on trial so i'm definitely interested to see i don't know if it's just a documentary or if it's a series but that seems like something i would like to watch it seems like something i would have liked to watch before doing this episode but (laughs) so but we we had enough facts but i'm interested to see what angle they take on that whole netflix series i'm gonna definitely watch that yes that's gonna that's gonna do it all right, cool. Well, then let's hop into thank our patrons real quick. Uh, we have so many patrons to thank. And again, Friday, October 20th, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Come celebrate our 100th episode with us. There's going to be Ecto Cooler Beer. They are releasing it just for us on this particular night. You can go on a ghost tour before you go to the brewery. They are going to be doing a ghost tour with um, dead, a ghost. Dead of night. <laughs> Dead of Night Ghost Tours in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they're going to lead you right into the brewery. We're going to tell some ghost stories at the brewery. We're going to hang out. We're going to have merch. We're going to have food. We're going to have a good time. Then we're going to do it again on the 26th in Plymouth, and then we're going to do it again on the 28th in Plymouth. We've decided that we own Plymouth, Massachusetts, basically. At least all of the breweries. Every single one of these events is at either a brewery or a beer store. (laughs) We are going to have to talk to the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and see if we can get a live Plymouth rock cam that we can just check on the rock mid-show. Every every single week, you just be like, yeah. The tricky thing is, all you have to do rock. is actually just take a picture of the rock and just say it's a live Plymouth Rock cam. <laughs> this because... was the way we were gonna do it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I'm excited that they're releasing like a like a ghost beer same night as we're doing this. Um, I believe uh, it was funny super... enough. Eric, Eric just said ecto cooler beer. I don't know if he knows something, but that is literally the beer that Second Wind does that they're gonna be releasing that night. Is yeah, ecto cooler? Fucking literally just said that, Dave. That's why he said it. He did. I wasn't listening to you. I never do. Welcome. <laughs> uh, Serena asked if it's on Netflix. Yeah, so it will be on Netflix. It comes out October 17th. It's called The Devil on Trial. So Netflix, I will be sending you an invoice for all those plugs I just gave you. Uh, let's thank our patrons real quick. VIPs, we have Allison V, Anna C, Dakota G. We have Donnie N. We have Glitter Tease, Cammy from Washington. We have Jeannie R, Jennifer P, Joseph S. Welcome to the VIPs. Lisa J, Mal. We have Mike at Blake, Mom and Pops W, Nick Robert H. and Inspires Gaming. Thank you so much for being VIPs. For the Warren's Wards, we have Ambie Rose, Kath Q, Chris Connolly, LBPS Founder, Next HTGS Guest. We have Cody Guard. We have Cyclone Dick, Dave Denial. We have DC, Elizabeth Young, Eugene M. We have I Hate Rob. Love that. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) They updated that soon because I just typed out the credits, and I would have loved typing that. I might type that three times. Please 
subscribe three more times. Anyways, uh, two more times. Anyways, going. we have Janice G, Marfire, Puppet Squatch. We have Rachel B, Sarah Cook. We have Siobhan, not Sharon. We have Steph A of the Church of the Stephanies, Sydney B, the other Rachel B, Adam S, Al Capone, Al Capone's allegedly poorly taxidermied wife. We have Al Capone's allegedly poorly trained circus rat. We have Alicia Espinoza. We have Anthony, the curse of two ghost worms T. We have Arcade Hunters, Ashley M, Brandon W, Captain McSlugs, did I say Ashley M? I'm going to say it again. Thanks, Ashley M. We have Colby has a shorter name. We have Crystal Quinn. We have Did I Really Shave My Legs for This? We have Ghost Stories of the Paranormal Podcast. We have Huska Castle. We have, I'm sorry, we have Huska Castle. We have Huggy Bear Joe R. We have John Wayne's allegedly poorly taxidermied ice maker. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. That is good. Nice job, Brennan. Uh, we have Julie S. We have Kelly Costa, Carly J, Marie R. We have Mark. We have Mark Twain and the Haunted Grape. We have Micro Dave's Rat Grapes. We have Mina H, Mariah M, Not Us Queen, Paul from St. Louis, Pork. Arr! Pork. You know the drill. Sam from Nepal. I'm sorry, Sam from Nepal. We have Sharon V, Soph, Hooper, The Big Spag Nasty, Tiffany H, and Wayne C. Thank you guys so much for being on Patreon. This has been a lot of fun, actually. Patreon's been like one of my favorite part of the show is reading off this list. So uh, thank you guys for that. $3 a month will get you on Patreon, ad-free episodes, early access, bonus content, all sorts of other fun stuff. $1 a month will get you on YouTube. As a member, unlock emotes. I believe we have a new emote slot available, so we're going to be figuring out what we're going to do for that. Drop your um, suggestions in Discord. That's where you can leave those. And uh, we will uh, design a new one and give it to it's the people. Be an ice machine, right? Like we need an ice machine now. Either an ice machine or we talked about the folding bed with the limb sticking out of it. Oh, yeah, yeah we need yeah, that. We need the folding bed. Yeah, it's going to be hard to not make that look like a, a people sandwich. It's just arms and legs to go out of it, but we'll, we'll do our thing. We'll so, figure it out. I think that'll pretty much do it. Anything else, gentlemen? Yeah. Uh, if you haven't, I don't know why you would have, because I haven't told you yet, but go check out Deviant Radio. It's an internet radio station. They're going to be doing, for the month of October, different haunted podcasts, haunted content, and one of the episodes is going to be us at some point during this month. So Deviant Radio, go check them out. And for everybody in chat right now asking for the lobster dance, I'm doing it, but you can't see it because of the wow. stupid view. You wow. can't see it because Jesse and Rob ruined everything. Ah, proven false. I stopped doing it by now. It's too late. <laughs> we we figured it out. Too bad. Very wow. good. All right. I think that'll pretty much do it. Anything else, gentlemen? Um, we had a question where you can leave a five-star review. You can leave it on apple itunes you can leave one on a youtube video or you can leave one in discord and i will read it unless your name is i hate rob and then i will hey that's a patron we'll do, we'll do literally anything they ask us to do <laughs> on um, this friday is friday the 13th so we are going to Ooh. review two friday the 13th movies i believe we did one and two on a previous review so we're gonna do three and four that's the game plan yes it should be a lot of fun yes uh, yeah other than that we'll see you guys on tuesday for episode 100 100 100 episodes we did it it's coming it's gonna be an absolute banger it's gonna be a party we're excited about it we'll see you guys then see ya
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 